Good morning. If I've, uh, if I've never met you, my name's Wilson. I skipped breakfast this morning, so I'd, I'd love to eat five, maybe six bagels with you after church if we haven't met yet. Or if we have met, I'm just going to eat a lot of bagels, so you'll find me there. If you've got a Bible with you, I'd invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 12. So this summer, we've been doing this thing where we've been walking very slowly through the gospel of Matthew, verse by verse, and that really pays off um, from time to time, like it'll pay off today. Uh, Because what we just read last week in Matthew's gospel was this, some of the best verses, most comforting verses in the whole Bible. Take my yoke upon you, Jesus says, and learn from me. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. That's what we just read. And then this week, we go straight from that into a heated conflict about the Sabbath, a conflict that Jesus has all over the Gospels. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus goes from describing this wonderful vision of soul rest straight into a fight about rest, right? This conflict that we'll see today at its heart is a conflict between transformation and pretense, okay? Jesus bringing the fire of transformation to human hearts and to the entire world, clashing with the pretense of the Pharisees, which shelters their heart in a shell of hardness from any sort of transformation, And we get invited to look in on this conflict so that our hearts can be exposed and so that hopefully we can experience the transformation that Jesus brings and be delivered from our pretense. So, into the conflict arena we go, and the arena in question, like I said, is the Sabbath, the day of rest. And it's the perfect place for this kind of conflict between transformation and pretense. Okay, to see this, we have to do a little work, us in our our 21st century culture, which is very alien to the culture of the Bible. um, We have to understand what the Sabbath was. We have to understand what the intent behind the Sabbath was. So the Sabbath was rooted in God's own practice. We learn in Genesis that God created everything in six days, and then on the seventh, he rested. Okay, we read in Genesis that he blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Okay, this seventh day is called the Sabbath, in Hebrew, Shabbat. And Shabbat means simply to stop. Stop. The day to stop. God stopped. He rested. And so he writes into creation a pattern for his image bearers to stop. Stop working. Stop wanting. Stop worrying. Okay? But the Sabbath also carries with it not just stopping, but this theme of delight. In the creation story, God works, and then he he keeps standing back and seeing what he's done and calling it good. And the seventh day is the culmination of that, where he stands back from the whole thing he's just done and calls it very good. And for a full day, just delights in it. And he calls human beings to have this in the rhythm of their week, to step back to just delight, to delight in God, to delight in each other, to delight in his creation. And lastly, the Sabbath is a weekly day to remember. We hear in the Ten Ten Commandments, the fourth commandment 
the longest one, is remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. To remember in that rich biblical sense of that word. Remember that life comes to us as a gift. Remember to take time to delight in life as an act of grateful worship. Remember to be present to the moment of life and to receive joy, to become human again. In short, when every week we stop and delight and remember, we're free from the burdens and toil of daily living so that we can receive life with joy and peace as a gift. It's to reorient us, a day to reorient to God so that our whole lives can be oriented to him, a day to stop and be reoriented to each other, to see each other again, to give each other a breather from work. We let go of earthly anxieties and see each other again to be delivered from the tyranny of the task list, the to-do list. In other words, the Sabbath day is written in as a day to reorient us to love, to loving God and loving neighbor. That is what the Sabbath is for. We were designed for the engine of love, and the Sabbath oils that engine week in and week out. Now, in light of this, we can see why the Sabbath becomes an arena of heated conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees, his transforming grace clashing head-to-head with their pretense. Okay, look at verse 2. Back up to verse 1 to just get the context of what's going on. In verse 1, the disciples are walking through a field of grain and plucking heads of grain because they're hungry. And in verse 2, the Pharisees saw this. And they said to Jesus, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. There's no recognition of hungry people there. There's no mercy, no seeing each other. It's just black and white. These are the rules, and these people are breaking them. It's pretense. Now, what was going on? How did this attitude creep in to the hearts of the Pharisees? Well, the Pharisees were teachers of the law the profession of religious leadership. And leadership in Israel in that day, hang with me, was concerned with the current plight of the people of God. Why is it that Israel never returned fully from exile? Why foreign oppressors still ruled? Why the presence of God had not fully returned to the temple? And when the Pharisees, if you can just imagine them, pouring over the scriptures as they're being trained and as they're studying day by day, And they're reading the history of their own people. And they see again and again in the prophets and throughout Scripture that the Sabbath was a significant theme in the downfall of Israel, in the sin of Israel. It was sort of a temperature gauge for their idolatry, their failure to orient toward God but orienting to other other gods instead, their failure to love their neighbor but instead working their neighbors to death, doing their business day after day, becoming hardened, to their neighbor. And so the Pharisees were anxious not to repeat history. But their great failure was, in their anxiety not to repeat the sins of their fathers, they didn't connect to the heart of God for the Sabbath. But instead they ran for the easier route, which is clinging to all the regulations. And so rest 
have become a minefield of regulation, tight-fisted, inflexible. They neglected the heart of the matter, love of God, love of neighbor, for the scaffolding around it, right? It's why Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs elsewhere. Looks so nice on the outside, but on the inside, there's just dead stuff. Pretense on the outside that covers up the lack of transformation on the inside. I love sports. Uh, I love playing sports, uh, all, all sorts of different, different kinds. When I was growing up, I loved baseball. And one of the most frustrating sport things in my whole life was I just never figured out how to hit well. Uh, just couldn't figure it out. And man, did I try. I had baseball coaches, hitting coaches. I spent time in the batting cage forever. I figured out every little rule and every little detail that it takes to hit a baseball well and still just like couldn't do it. You know, every few at bats, I'd hit a little dinger ground ball and like get to run instead of going straight to the dugout. Um, I'd get thrown out at first, you know. And then there were some guys for who it was just second nature, Man, they just got up there and, and could just crush it. And they were, they were following all the rules of hitting, like, you know, the stance and things like that. But they just had a second nature for it that no matter how hard I tried, I was just never going to get it, right? The moral and spiritual life is similar to that. Jesus will give a second nature to your spiritual and moral life so that your second nature can be a healthy spiritual life and a virtuous life pouring out naturally from a heart of virtue. It's this second nature that Jesus wants to provide as a gift to each and every human being that's willing to receive it. In fact, he must provide it as a gift, right? Otherwise, our spiritual and our moral life will be essentially a pretense a putting on of a show. That's why Jesus calls the Pharisees hypocrites, play actors. They're putting on a show. What they're doing is not the real thing. It does not flow from a pure heart of love for God and neighbor, but flows from a heart full of disordered desire. And the proof is in the pudding. So then, Jesus tries in this passage to get under this hard shell of pretense and expose the human heart. Not to shame it, not to harm it, but to transform it. And so he does this using every angle he can, right? Verse 3, he uses the law. Haven't you, like the history of the Bible, haven't you read what David did? He broke the law by eating the bread you weren't supposed to eat, okay? What about the priests that work in the temple on the Sabbath and their work isn't breaking the law, right? Can't you see how this works? Can't you see the heart of God that's under, underlying all of these things? Later, he just uses a common sense argument to try and pry under this hardened heart. If in your, to the Pharisees, if in your expertise of the scripture, you're deaf to God's voice in it, okay, then I'll draw from your, your life experience. So later in the passage, in the synagogue scene, verse 9, the Pharisees ask, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And Jesus said to them, which one of you has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So yes, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. In other words, you already know from your own life experience that mercy triumphs. 
you already know that love is the command underneath this because you'll show mercy and love for a sheep on the Sabbath. So why not for human beings? But really at the central, at the center, at the heart of Jesus' response is the confrontation that there's just no getting around. It's not ultimately about who wins this argument about Sabbath stuff. It's about Jesus being master of the world. It's about God's presence being in your midst, needing salvation into the dough of the world from the deepest inner being of an individual to the very world itself. And what will you do about it? So he says, verse six, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. In verse 8, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Essentially what Jesus says is that what I'm bringing into the world and what is banging on the doors of your heart is so much deeper than you realize. And for the Pharisees, so much deeper than you are willing to receive. You see, the Pharisees are not in a humble posture ready to receive the movement of God's grace. They are in a place of spiritual plenty. We've mastered the law. We guide the nation. And the rigidity with which they handle the laws flows out of the rigidity of their very hearts. But Jesus says, God is in your midst. And he's come with a fire of mercy to change the very core of who you are. Now this message that Jesus has come for radical transformation. This is either a fresh breeze of good news or it is a total threat. What Jesus has on offer, many are not willing to receive. Because to receive what Jesus has means he has to boil you down to nothing first. The beginning of the process of transformation in your life and in mine is to come with nothing. That's the beginning. We acknowledge that we carry nothing. And then the adventure can begin. It's why people who are morally and spiritually bankrupt in the Gospels run after Jesus. Because they're at the starting point. And the fire of his mercy is like a treasure that they found buried. It's like the pearl of great price. They're ready to receive it. But it's massively threatening to those who are not bankrupt, spiritually, morally, even physical possessions, which can trap the human heart. At the very end of our story, the Pharisees see a miracle with their own two eyes in the synagogue, and they immediately turn on their heels and conspire how they can destroy Jesus. Why? Because what Jesus just did throughout this whole passage is deeply threatening to them. Because at every move, Jesus is saying this, despite all your hard effort, you still miss the point. Despite doing everything right and trying your best, you still miss the point. You totally missed it. And I'm not calling for an adjustment here or there. I'm calling you to trust me and to scrap your whole project and to begin afresh with nothing but me deeply humbling and terrifying. If what Jesus is saying, that we have all utterly missed the heart of God and need to undergo a heart change 
If that is true, then the consequences are earth-shattering for people like the Pharisees. Right? Jesus critiques them elsewhere for loving the best seats in the synagogue and the greetings in the marketplace and making these long prayers for pretense. And all of that has to come crashing down. He'll bring them down from the place of power and prominence, down from the best seats, from the market greetings, down all the way to the level of a man with a withered hand who's just standing there waiting on the Lord to see what he'll do, down to the level of poor sinners. And it's terrifying, but that's where the work begins. Now, enough about the Pharisees, enough picking on them. How about us? Right, the natural bent of the human heart still does not like this message. At its center, it is about something outside of us that we cannot manipulate or control or manage having to come in. It's about a radical change of the very inner core of who we are and that everything else must flow from that place. Right? It's the difference between following all the external rules and simply doing good from the outpouring of the heart. It's where this message of Jesus differs from every other philosophy. It differs in that the initial change of heart, this fundamental first step, is impossible for man. It's funny. Um, I was listening to an interview just yesterday that was talking about Stoicism and how Stoicism is, is um, very popular right now, especially for young guys. And it's funny, the practices and the virtues of Stoicism have so much in common with a lot of the practices and virtues that are extolled by Christianity, but the starting places are completely different. Stoicism has no savior. Being a follower of Jesus means admitting that the grace of God must create something out of nothing in me just like God created something out of nothing in the very beginning of creation. And then virtue can flow from that. But the only place to begin is with nothing, is with poverty, which is very hard to hear if you think you have everything. So where does this leave us? Okay, for one, if you feel spiritually and morally bankrupt, if you feel like you have nothing to offer God, then you're actually not far away. You're actually quite near. If all of your efforts to prop up your life and to look accomplished or to look like the kind of person who does and says all the right things, if that has become exhausting, then come to Jesus and you'll find rest. If you are stomping on the gas pedal of your life and going nowhere, you need a new engine in that thing. And Jesus will give it. Jesus will put it there. He can replace a stone heart that pumps out pretentious action, exhausting action, with a flesh and blood heart that can pour out virtue, that can live in the unforced rhythms of grace. The capstone of which is love. Now, it may be that you already have this new heart. You've received Jesus. You've been washed in the waters of baptism. All the promises of yours. New life has been planted within you. And now the question is, what will you do with it? A fully transformed life is a process. 
a process we undergo under the easy yoke of Jesus. So I'll leave with this. A few steps for reconnecting with the transforming grace of Jesus within you, which he brings. Okay, for one, we never leave behind the starting place. The Christian life begins with nothing. And we carry this kind of empty-handedness, this childlike receptivity, everywhere with us. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Okay? Beautifully, we reenact this physically with our bodies every week in worship. Okay? Every week we come to confession with empty hands. Everybody in this room that says the words of confession says that we did not love God and we did not love our neighbor this week. We are confronted like the Pharisees that in some way or another we missed the mark this week. We missed the heart of God. We missed each other. And so we get to come empty-handed before God and say, this is where I am. And every week, God pardons us and he mends our heart again so we can go out into the next week and we can grow and we can love God and we can love our neighbor. He brings the light into our life and it's not a destroying light, it's a purifying light. When we come to the table at the end of the service, it's no mistake that we don't grab the bread from a plate, right? We hold our hands empty like this. We come to Jesus with physically empty hands, spiritually hungry, like the disciples walking through a grain field and picking little, little grains of wheat. We're walking with Jesus, just like them, empty hands, to receive the bread of life. Once we take that initial step of admitting our poverty to Jesus and taking his reaches, riches, we never really leave that poverty behind. Second, okay, second, we are urgent about seeing the transformation of Jesus work its way into every nook and cranny of our life. And this might come as a surprise, but this is Paul in Philippians. Paul says this, not that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I press on toward the goal for the price of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is where Christians, even on the other side of Jesus' transforming grace, can fall into the trap of pretense. When we have no language for transformation, we become spiritually passive, and our lives don't change. And so we're working in pretense, outwardly, when our hearts are still unchanged. It's kind of ironic, right? At least in some wings of the church, that in our fear of becoming Pharisees, we become suspicious of externals or even action. But it's not about action versus inaction here. It's about the heart from which action flows, right? Jesus tells the Pharisees elsewhere, you tithe your mint and dill and cumin, but you neglect the other weightier things of the law. And then he says this, you should have done those without neglecting the others. Still tie the mint and the dill and all that stuff, great, but like do it from my heart of love. And that heart of love comes from nowhere but me. Right deeds without a right heart is deadly, but with a new heart that is shaped continuously day after day by faith, hope, and love, we're called to put off the old self and to put on the new. And the church has always had tools for doing this. 
for cooperating with the Holy Spirit in the work of transformation, okay? Practices of prayer, community, fasting, worship, self-denial, okay? The practices are like tools that we use in a garden. All the growth is from God, right? But he gives us these tools to till and to care for this garden. He brings us into the work with him of our own healing transformation and the transformation of the world. So if you know Jesus, like Keith was saying at the beginning of the service, if you know Jesus, but you're just stuck in apathy and your life is just not really changing and and what difference does it make, right? If you're there, come and talk to one of us. Come and talk to one of the pastors of this church. We, We would love to sit down and talk to you about prayer and talk to you about what a rule of life could look for to start making space for the grace of God to grow in your heart. Or find an older Christian. Find somebody that you look at and it seems like their heart is pouring forth love and joy and peace and and patience and these fruit of the Spirit and ask if they'll meet with you. How do they live their life? How do they order their day? How are these things growing within them, right? We don't have to do this alone. Our transformation is God's will for us to start a good work and to bring it to completion. So run to him afresh empty-handed, and willing to follow him down the path of life wherever he leads. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.